Hello and welcome to On Air with Myrick O'Connell. I'm Howard Kaplan. This On Air podcast features attorneys from Myrick O'Connell, a full-service law firm with offices in Worcester, Westboro, and Boston. With the coronavirus or COVID-19 crisis, couples are cohabitating together 24-7. Cohabitation is a term of art that typically refers to an unmarried couple living together. When these relationships end, major financial issues often arise. Isn't that the truth? People in these situations are often caught off guard as to what their rights actually are when ending a relationship with their partner. We have to help us sort all this out and explain what happens in this situation. Tim Brockler, who is an attorney at Myrick O'Connell, and thank you so much, Tim, for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. I'm delighted. To start things off, Tim, from a general legal perspective, what is the difference between married couples and non-married cohabitants? Marriage has this really incredibly long history in our society, and it's a it's a social institution that for centuries we've really held up as the foundation of what we think of as a family. And because of the high importance placed on marriage, our civil laws have also evolved to support the institution of marriage. And marriage is now uh, essentially a state-sanctioned legal contract because of that, which I know doesn't really sound very romantic, uh, but that's that's kind of what it boils down to, because there's, there's numerous benefits that our civil laws give to married couples. You know, you think Social Security benefits, tax benefits, insurance, protections in the event one spouse passes away. There's, there's literally hundreds of benefits conferred on couples by the government by virtue of their marriage. And with a little more history, what, what then evolved from marriage was uh, eventually divorce and the divorce laws. And initially, for a very long time, hundreds of years, upon marriage, all of a woman's property would become the man's. And the woman would really cease to exist as a legal individual uh, once she was married. But as we progressed, and as society and women were finally recognized to have property rights separate and apart from their husbands, which were very gradual to change over time, you had laws put in place to, to deal with property rights when one party it, to a couple wanted to divorce. And incidentally, too, for many, many years, and even up until the mid-70s in Massachusetts, a person, usually a woman, um, had to prove that she was entitled to a divorce uh, based on some fault of the husband, you know, which could be adultery or, or abandonment or cruelty, things like that. It was it was kind of a high bar That's right. uh, to, yeah. to hit. Um, but what, what we eventually arrived at through the evolution of our views on marriage and divorce is, and um, it, it, it's a statutory framework that we have now in, in our states. And um, it, it provides how to divide property, how to deal with spousal support if one spouse has a need for that. And so, so we have this system of, of laws around divorce and, and where a marriage now can't be legally terminated unless the state says so. Um, and, and here in Massachusetts, that's by way of a court granting a divorce. So with, with unmarried couples who are in a relationship, you have none of that statutory framework in place about how to deal with dividing property and, and other financial is- issues. So 
you know, consequently, you've got this huge gap in the law for couples who never get married, but at the end of their relationship might have some very complicated financial issues to deal with and unwind. And and this is often an issue with, with the same-sex community prior to marriage being legalized um, by the courts in Massachusetts in in. 2004 and then federally in 2015. Um, But we also still have many, you know, same-sex couples as well as heterosexual couples who are choosing to to live together uh, without being married. Tim, uh, I've heard the phrase common law marriage before, or couples, you know, they refer to themselves, and and I've known many actually, as a common law marriage. What is this and and what does that mean exactly? Sometimes I think different people and couples have different views and definitions of what a common law marriage really is. Yeah, I, I and I've heard I've heard many people say this too. Um, it, it, it's common law marriage. It's generally a concept where a couple lives together for a period of time and um, really holds themselves out to the community as a married couple, but without ever actually going through the formal process of getting married with an actual marriage license. And the, the idea with common law marriage is that once you establish that you have a common law marriage and you're living essentially as married people do for a period of time, that the very same rights and responsibilities granted to legally married couples by the state are conferred on the common law married couple. So in the eyes of the law, and, and this is important, only if that particular state recognizes common law marriage, that common law married couple is is essentially a legally married couple, and they can avail themselves uh, of the divorce laws if they decide to end the relationship. And the big question, drumroll please, is does Massachusetts recognize common law marriage? That's a big, big, big no. Um, Only about a dozen or so states recognize common law marriage, and Massachusetts is not one of them. Uh, there's There's been a number of cases brought before the courts here trying to establish marital rights for non-married couples, and the courts in our state have, have been very clear and very consistent in refusing to recognize any form of common law marriage. And even if a relationship is is of quite substantial length, it can never evolve into a lawful marriage unless the couple actually takes that legal step to marry. So, so again, in Massachusetts, when an unmarried couple splits up, there, there is no clear mechanism in the law to deal with that. And the courts are not going to treat that couple in the same way as a married couple getting divorced um, because the courts are so resistant to the idea of common law marriage. Interesting. Are there common traits of states that do recognize common law marriages, or is it just all over the place? Uh, no, no. I mean, um, there are a few Western states that do. Rhode Island is one uh, that does recognize common law marriage. Um, interestingly, though, if a couple does live in a state that recognizes common law marriage and they establish themselves under the laws of that state as having a common law marriage. If they then move to Massachusetts and later split up, Massachusetts will recognize the laws of the other state and recognize that couple as a married couple. Okay, that's, that is good to know. 
I mean, not for any personal reason. I, yeah. I'm legally married I, in, in a ceremony, you know, the rice and the, you know, the, we, we've, we've done it. Right. <laughs> we've done it the uh, quote unquote legal way. So when an unmarried couple ends, <laughs> when an unmarried couple ends their relationship, how does that legally differ from when a married couple divorces? So, so when a married couple divorces, as I said, we've got this statutory framework in place to, to deal with that and guide us uh, as to how financial issues are dealt with. Um, so there's a statute regarding division of property on divorce, which uh, essentially gives the courts broad discretion to assign any property interest that either spouse has a part of, as part of the divorce, um, you know, regardless of who's whose name is on the property or how the property is owned. The divorce statutes also list a number of, of factors that have to be considered in determining what's a fair assignment of a couple's property. And these factors include the length of the marriage, the, the ages of the party who contributed the property, who contributed to the household, what income a party has, a number of other factors. And I'm, I'm going to just kind of like broadly generalized, but often what this result is in, is in that longer marriages, such as those that are 20 years or more, um, there's a pretty strong presumption that all property, really regardless of how it came into the marriage or how it's owned, gets divided 50-50. In a shorter marriage, maybe like five years or less, that's, that's kind of like your pick-up-your-marbles-and-go-home marriage, where for the most part, the couple's going to leave with what they came in with and and, you know, who contributed to the property is a little bit more of a factor. Um, for, for unmarried couples, we don't have this property division statute. And so the courts are not able in the same way that they can with a married couple to assign any property that either person might own when that relationship's over. The, the courts can't assign separate property of one person to the other um, with an unmarried couple. And so what the reality often is, is that whatever has your name on it um, at the end of that relationship is what you're entitled to, to keep. Um, I, and I think a good example would be like uh, to take a house, for instance, where you're living. For a married couple, when they divorce, regardless of whose house that name um, happens to be in, the court can assign an interest to the other spouse uh, in that house. So if the couple was married for a long time and they lived in that house, uh, uh, but the house happened to be in, in the wife's name, if that couple divorced, uh, her hu husband or her, her wife is going to likely get 50% of that house under the property division statutes for divorce. But if you take that same couple uh, in the same committed relationship for 20 years, but they never married, uh, then that person in the couple whose name was not uh, on the house and wasn't on the deed suddenly finds that he or she has, has no interest in that house when that long relationship ends. And I've, I've represented people on both sides of the situation where they were in a relationship for a very long time, uh, 20 or 30 years, never married. And for whatever reason, the bulk of the property happens to be titled uh, just in one person's name. And that presents a really challenging situation, particularly for the person who's put uh, several decades of their life into a relationship and suddenly finding that the law doesn't treat them as a married couple in a divorce would be treated. So 
it, this kind of begs the question, Tim, what claims and remedies are available to someone in a situation where they've been with an unmarried partner for a long time, but the person has nothing in their name? So the easiest thing and the most helpful thing would be if there is an express contract, so a written agreement, basically, between the couple with regards to property rights. That's really would be the first thing I would look for, um, despite the, the aversion that the courts here have to common law marriage, what what the courts have held is that people who are unmarried and living together, they're free to uh, contract concerning financial matters relative to the relationship. Um, and those contracts, uh, for the most part, will be enforceable. And these contracts, they're subject to, to normal contract rules and law, which means in some cases, if you don't have an actual written contract, you could have an oral contract. Um, you know, and, a, and an example there might be, uh, Howard, I'll put your name on my bank account if you start contributing your paychecks to that account for me to pay the bills. If I then never added your name to my bank account, but you started putting your paychecks into that account and, and we split up, you could potentially have an oral contract claim against me for part of that bank account. Um, but that, that gets complicated, too, because oral contracts don't work in the example that we talked about with the house, because there's other statutes that say contracts pertaining to, to real estate uh, have to be in writing generally. Really, more often than not, people in this situation don't have written agreements um, or contracts that, that can be easily enforceable, um, so it gets tough. So, again, that begs another question, so what then? <laughs> do you, do you, are you just uh, sorry you lose? <laughs> sorry you lose. Um, not, not sorry you lose totally. There are some possible remedies, um, and, and I'll, I'll sort of caveat with saying that, that they're hard claims to make, but they, they, are, they are there. You know, there, there's some options. The potential options, I, I'd say, fall under a category of are what um, are known as equitable remedies. And equitable remedies are when there's no statute or rule available for a court to provide a re remedy, but what there can be is sort of a court-fashioned remedy that's really done just based on the notion of what's fair, what the court thinks is fair. Um, one of those equitable remedies that you might be able to use in a situation uh, where you have an unmarried couple ending their relationship is what's known as a constructive trust. And this isn't like a trust that your grandmother sets up for you that doles out money or something, it's it's basically a claim to say that um, one party would be unfairly enriched or benefited if they were allowed to keep property or some other benefit under all of the circumstances. And an example of this, there was a court case where the female partner of a guy who owned a house she gave up her career to move uh, with this guy she was in a relationship with into his house. She contributed her earnings to the upkeep of the home. Uh, she was promised that they own the property together, even though the title was only in his name. At, at the end of this relationship, after the relationship uh, broke down, under a claim of constructive trust, the court found that uh, she had a one-half interest in the property. In a constructive 
antitrust case, one key that you've got to show is that there was what's called a fiduciary relationship between the couple. And and what you're looking for there is one person really putting their trust and um, financial well-being in the hands of their partner and relying on their partner in that way. Um, and and that's what the court found was the, the situation in this case. And if that sounds confusing, it's because it is. It's something that gets really fact-specific. Um, but, but like I said, in that case I mentioned, the court found that this woman was less educated and, and experienced than, than uh, her partner, and she, she had placed her trust in him to manage her financial affairs, and she really relied on him in that way for a long period of time. And so in that case, uh, the court found that uh, there had been a fiduciary relationship between the couple, which then justified this constructive trust remedy. And it convinced the court that in fairness, this woman should have an interest in this real estate. But in another case where you didn't have um, that type of relationship and you had two comparably sophisticated and educated people managing their own affairs, you probably wouldn't um, be able to establish that, that kind of a claim. And you'd have a much tougher time for that. Um, Another uh, equitable remedy and, and, and a potential claim an unmarried uh, person might have is what's known as quasi-contract or quantum merit. Oh, yeah. And yeah. with, with, un, with unmarried couples, this is, this is pretty similar to constructive trust claims, but it gets a little bit more specific. And in this claim, there's, there's no contract, there's no written agreement, um, but something, somebody has done something very specific to benefit somebody else. And the idea is that it would be unfair to let, let the person who was benefited keep that benefited. And a, a, a kind of real-world example of this, there was a recent case here in Massachusetts where a building contractor, he lived with a woman for 16 years, and uh, under a quasi-contract claim, he was entitled to recover the cost of construction materials that he had spent to build additions to a house that was in her name only. And so, so in that type of case, he was able to actually show the specific amount that he put into a particular asset. And so he was able to, to recoup that down the road. Um, but in, in that case, he had also um, contributed to the woman's mortgage, but he wasn't specifically credited with that, kind of like the other case that we talked about. Um, and, and, and in this case, you know, the court sort of figured that what he was paying towards the mortgage would, was essentially sort of fair rent for him getting to live there. So, again, you know, these are very complicated cases that get very uh, fact-specific, and, and the courts have a lot of discretion in terms of, of how to deal with those facts and how to deal with these issues. So what happens, Tim, if the unmarried couple actually owns property jointly, when they decide to end the relationship. Now, does it just get divided 50-50 and that's it? They go their separate ways? So that can sometimes make things easier because often there will be a presumption um, that the asset is owned uh, equally, 50-50. But if someone actually contributed the entire amount of the property, um, they might have a claim similar to, to, to the ones that we just went through and be able to retain more than half of that 
property. And for the person that maybe didn't contribute it to the joint property, he or she might be able to make a claim that that uh, their interest was a gift from the other person, which, if that's the case, could could entitle that person to retain their their you know one half share of the property. So, um, so and again, in a case like this, it might on its face seem a little bit more straightforward. But again, you know, it's all about the facts, and oftentimes, you know, people don't keep records of gifts that they make or contributions that they put into a property. So it it can all get very complicated. Well, there have been so many songs written about love, and uh, boy, this uh, this definitely proves love <laughs> is complicated, particularly if you don't crush your T's, dot your I's, get married under a state that uh, only recognizes a formal marriage. So we're talking about uh, cohabitation here on, uh, on air with Myrick O'Connell, with our guest, uh, Tim Brockler. So what about divorce? Is there any form of alimony equivalent available for unmarried cohabitants when their relationship ends? Kind of like the answer to the common law marriage question. Again, that's a, that, that answer is a big no. Um, so uh, there, there is no statute for alimony um, for unmarried couples. There is a statute for alimony for divorced couples. Um, alimony is, is essentially financial support payable by someone to a former spouse where that former spouse has a need for support. And, and sort of the classic example is one spouse who defers their career to stay home and raise kids while the other spouse works. And particularly after a longer marriage, that stay-at-home spouse isn't going to be able to immediately jump into the workforce and support him or herself if there is divorce. And so that's where alimony comes into play. Um, without a marriage, you know, you might have a couple who live the exact same way, but there's no statutory basis for support if that couple breaks up. Um, California, a state that is kind of notorious for a case that actually recognized uh, support for an unmarried couple, um, and and they called it palimony, which is a term some people are aware of and, and you know, kind of say and think may apply in their situation. But um, it's, it's something that's been rejected by the courts here over and over again. And it's not something that someone could utilize one of the equitable claims either um, that we discussed to get. And, you know, so again, the issue is with, with like with property, people can, if, if they, you know, have the fortitude to, they can contract for ongoing support in the event a cohabitation relationship ends, um, that would be enforceable by the courts here if the contract was, but the support wouldn't be considered alimony. Makes sense. Now, what about unmarried couples who have children together? Does that change anything in terms of how the law treats them? Yeah, and that that's a great question because this is the one area where unmarried couples and married couples uh, do get treated similarly. Um, under the divorce statutes for married couples, there are provisions that give courts jurisdiction to make orders uh, about child support and child custody and parenting, and, and kid-related issues are often a big part of a divorce for a couple who has kids. Fortunately, there are also statutes that govern child-related issues for children whose uh, parents are not married. And historically, these kids were referred to as out-of-wedlock children. 
And the uh, statutes in place, they provide the same mechanisms for the courts to deal with the issues of child support and custody, uh, just as they do with children of married couples. And what this arose out of, you know, really is the state's desire just to treat all kids the same, regardless of whether they're the product of a marital relationship or not. You know, we don't want to prejudice any kids uh, by, by virtue of whether their parents are married or not. So, so when an unmarried couple has a child and, and they're no longer together, really the, the exact same standards of, of what child support might be and what, what parenting and custody issues might look like for that child will apply. So much to think about, particularly if you're in love and you have not tied the knot and you are living together, unmarried cohabitants. So a good wrap-up question, Tim, I think, is what can couples who are unmarried and want to live together do to protect themselves? Yeah, so I, I, I think first and foremost, like we touched on, having a written agreement done is essential for any couple living together who's who's not going to get married. Um, I think you want to lay out and agree on what property is whose and, and how future property acquired will be dealt with during the relationship. Um, if you're going to hold property jointly, what does that look like? And and certainly, and most importantly, what happens if the relationship ends and, and, and how you're unwinding that? Because like I've, I've said, I represented people on both sides of the situation where the couple was together for a very long time. Um, they raised children together. One had most of the income and most of the property, and both sides present tremendously difficult issues to deal with, and and the various claims that you've got aren't cut and dry. And if in any of these cases the couple had had a written agreement laying out how things uh, should go if the relationship ended and what those expectations were, then, then we'd have... A, a much easier unwinding of, of this couple and and potentially no litigation, um, which which is always a good thing. So I think if you're cohabitating with someone and not getting married, uh, I, I I think you do so at your your own peril if you don't have a written agreement, and particularly if you're contributing to a mortgage for a house that you don't have an ownership interest in, or if you're working part-time to, to take care of kids and relying uh, on your partner financially in any way. And lastly, I'll just say, I think having those conversations about money and finances with someone that you're going to live with or, or are living with is a good thing to do um, and, and to sort of figure that out. Um, and it's certainly easier to, to have those conversations uh, when things are good um, before things potentially turn sour. Well, lots to think about here. <laughs> Thanks, Tim. Uh, today's guest on On Air with Myrick O'Connell has been attorney Tim Brockler. We really appreciate your taking the time to appear with us today. One quick question I have, Tim, is how can folks contact you with questions or concerns? I can be emailed at T-B-R-A-U-G-H-L-E-R, and that's at myrickoconnell.com. Um, or by telephone at 617-391-2164. And that's my office line. But uh, if you dial it, it will ring through to my cell phone at home for as long as I'm here and we're here. That's right. We're all socially distancing here. You're at home. I'm at home. Uh, Hopefully uh, the listeners are at home and uh, sheltering in place. Tim, I want to thank you very much for being on On Air with Myrick O'Connell. Thanks. Thank you, Howard. It's great to talk with you. 
You can learn how Tim and his colleagues at Myrick O'Connell can assist you with your business and personal legal needs by visiting MyrickO'Connell.com. I'm Howard Kaplan. On behalf of Myrick O'Connell and attorney Tim Brockler, thanks for joining us. Take care and stay safe. This podcast is brought to you by the law firm of Myrick O'Connell. It is intended to inform you of developments in the law and to provide information of general interest. It is not intended to constitute legal advice and should not be relied upon as such. This podcast may be considered advertising under the rules of the Massachusetts Supreme Judicial Court. Mm-hmm.